This is when the second wave of the meme stock rally on GME happened and the stock for about a two, three day run went from $40, shot through 100 on its way up to 200 plus before you know, it again cratered back down. And again, you know, today GME is probably in the teens, maybe $20 a share. That, that investment I made lost a lot of money. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, you may notice I have a bit of a froggy voice as I'm coming off a little bit of a cold. I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with Jason Sue. Jason, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. You can see that I'm going to be counting on you to be speaking in this podcast episode, <laughs> which I know you have the qualifications to do that. So let me introduce you to the audience. Jason is founder, chairman, and CIO of Radiant Global Advisors, a global investment management group with more than $15 billion in assets managed using its strategies as of June 30th, 2022. The business applies quantitative methods to assess behavioral-based alpha prevalent in inefficient markets like China. Jason also co-founded Research Affiliates, a smart beta and asset allocation leader with over $143 billion in assets managed using its various strategies. I first met Jason as an audience member when he presented at a CFA event in Hong Kong, and I was quite impressed, but it's taken us a long time to get this meeting together, and I'm happy to be here. So, Jason, why don't you take a moment and tell us the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world? I, I don't know how unique it is, but I guess the one thing that I think I do well is I can take complicated ideas and synthesize it for my audience. You know, I, in addition to, to being a founder and CIO of an investment management company. I'm also a professor at UCLA in the United States and at the National University of Political Science in Taiwan. And part of you know that responsibility is to take complicated financial macroeconomic concepts and help, and generally because I teach an MBA program, right? Help people who have, you know, general business sophistication, but not really in-depth technical knowledge with regard to financial markets or the macroeconomics. And so I think that's kind of my unique value proposition, which is I can make complicated investment theses, investment strategies, I think consumable, understandable to my institutional clients all the way down to my MBA students. And through that, hopefully they make better decisions. Yeah. Well, one of my questions for you is when you started, you know, as a young person and you were you know, getting started in, in your career and in markets, and then you compare where you're at now, it's just a whole different space. But at that time, what was it that got you excited? Were you immediately into quant or were you into other stuff? And then you slowly started to see that there's, you know, a framework that you could build. Well, Andrew, I'll tell you, I didn't even know 
what we sort of do in academic research, in, in kind of what we teach and learn within business schools. I didn't know that was referred by the industry as quant. All I thought was, like, if you're going to study something, you should look at data. If you're going to tell a story, you should find ways to use the data to illustrate that story. And illustrate that that story isn't just a one-off story, but seems to happen with some consistency and regularity. Over time, I discovered, well, in the industry, we call that the quantitative way of investing. Mm. But for me, I'm naturally gravitated toward understanding how the economy works, how the financial markets work, how the two interact with each other, and why they create value and is sort of a good thing for human prosperity. But just in trying to understand that, we look at so much data, right? Because you have a lot of compelling hypotheses. Without looking at data, you really don't know which one holds water. And when I started you know, my own investment management company, I realized, okay, this, this habit of looking at data and using data to inform decision-making is known as quantitative investing. And there's you know, at least a meaningful part of the market who believes in that approach to investing. So I guess I've always was, was one who believes in the power of data. And it's good that uh, within our industry, that is a well-defined, well-accepted way to invest. Hmm. I remember when I started as an analyst in 1993 in Thailand, I had a boss in Hong Kong who was one of the top strategists in the world. And when I saw the way he wrote research, it was kind of a revelation because he would write, 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 and then he'd put a mark on his paper that says, insert chart of M2 here. Insert chart of such and such here. And I got the feeling like he started with narratives and stories, and then he searched for data to support those stories. And I never could do that myself. And one of the best compliments I, I felt was a compliment was when a fund manager client of mine said, the thing I like about you is every time you make a statement, you provide evidence to try to back it up. And so I know what you're saying is that the idea of trying to prove, you know, and understand that. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, it's always a thing that people feel like it's such a, a dichotomy because we, we think that the market is efficient and therefore this type of things and standard structured ways of investing wouldn't produce alpha. And then we have times when it's just clearly obvious that the market's not efficient and it's going kind of nuts. How is a person who doesn't know much about the markets think about, is the market efficient or not? I would say whether the market's efficient or not may be less relevant. I think the right question for any person to ask is, should I invest as if I'm smarter than the market or should I invest as if I'm dumber than the market? Because it's entirely possible. The mm -hmm. market's very inefficient, but you're still dumber than the market. Right? <laughs> I mean, that is a, a very significant possibility. And for most of us, that's probably a true statement. So I think, you know, if you're at the top of the food chain, maybe you think about philosophically, oh, is market efficient? If it's efficient, it's probably hard for me to beat the market with all the data and, and all the fancy machineries. But again, most of us are not there, right? Most of us are, you know, retail, maybe slightly more informed retail who reads the Wall Street Journal or who, you know, watch Andrew, your podcast. Mm -hmm. But you know, the question to ask is, do I believe I'm smarter than the market? And that doesn't require the market to be efficient or inefficient. That really just requires you looking at you versus the more successful participants in the marketplace and say, can I beat him reliably? And if I can't, how then should I invest? 
And if you think that you're you're not as smart as the market, I'm not going to call you dumb, but I'm going to say you're not as smart as the market. Then how do you invest? Let's go back in time maybe to when you started off with research affiliates and you guys were doing what you were originally doing. How do you approach the market then in that case? Well, if you don't believe you are smarter than the market, first and foremost is, well, you probably should pay up for someone to do it for you, right? Delegate to a professional manager by buying a mutual fund. Now, of course, you still have to have some knowledge, right? Like, you know, which is the right mutual fund to buy? What's the cost of that mutual fund? Is this a credible manager at a credible institution? So, you know, there's still some level of knowledge required, but it's certainly sort of a lower level requirement than knowing exactly which stocks to buy and when to sell it. So I'd say you want to outsource, right? It's like everything we do in life, right? We don't perform surgery on ourselves, right? We go to a doctor, right? So I think when it comes to investing, which certainly matters, right? It has a huge impact on your happiness and your ability to retire and then live after you retire, right? Like that you want to outsource to someone who does it professionally and who's trained to do it. Because even the trained professionals don't beat all the time and can have very negative returns, right? The chance of us outperforming them is even lower. So I would say you want, you want to delegate first and foremost. Mm. You know, one of the things I've always thought about is share repurchases. When we look at share repurchases in the market, you've got all these people saying that they're bad or executives are manipulating them. Now, when I look at the fund managers who are my clients over the years, these are some of the brightest people out there and they're looking for an edge, you know, at every, every, every little edge that they can possibly get. And it doesn't make sense to me that someone would say, well, executives are manipulating by doing share buybacks. Are these guys so, they're really smart in some areas, but they're not in others? How could it be that CEOs could be manipulating and these smart hedge funds are not betting right against that and seeing right through that? Or is the market such that it's really not as smart as you think? When you look at the hedge funds, they're, they're really thinking about two things, right? They're thinking about the corporate fundamentals. So they're thinking about the CEO of the company and what does he know? How is he, how is he investing when he does a share buyback? Is it really true? Because he always says, oh, it's because I think my stock price is undervalued. Is it really true that his stock is so undervalued that it's better to spend the money to buy shares versus spending the money to hire more engineers, more product people, more salespeople? Or is the truth really, well, the firm doesn't have attractive growth opportunities. And rather than having cash sitting there collecting barely 1%, it's maybe a better deal to, you know, buy shares back and therefore use the cash that way. So I think if you think about hedge fund managers, they ask that question. They're trying to understand what is information contained within shares buyback. But they also have to ask the other question, which is, well, even if the reality is the company is slowing down, if the marketplace, right, if the marketplace right now is too euphoric, it's dominated by retail, it's dominated by Robinhood.com and Reddit, you know, Wall Street bet forum, People might mistaken all shares buyback as the company is so cheap that it's going to rally up. And the hedge fund might say, look, in this case, the fundamental doesn't matter in the short run. It may be sort of market euphoria, market irrationality that matters. So I might ignore the fundamental and simply assume that the market will repeat the recent craziness we have seen. So I would say it's, you know, whenever you see prices, it's always the interaction between the fundamental 
and market sentiment. And if you're a good investor, you just got to think about both. Yeah, you just can't ignore it. So if the market is misinterpreting something, they could misinterpret it for a while. And then maybe one day they interpret it correctly. If we go back in time and we look at the different research that you've done over the years, you know that feeling when you've when you've done research that you know is good and you know that it's original and it's something that really is valuable. What was the first time that you felt that in the research that you've done over the years, whether it was published or internal? I think the one piece of research that really defined my career. And so, you know, I have some special emotional attachment to this. I'll talk about it here. Was my paper that talked about how cap weighting is not the efficient way to construct a portfolio, active or passive, hmm. in inefficient markets, right? So I started off by saying, look, you know, we all know from kind of traditional MBA textbooks that if market's efficient, you know, constructing a portfolio that's weighted based on market capitalization so that you know, a big company gets more weight, a small company gets less weight, is a good idea, right? Because it guarantees liquidity, right? You get more weights to big companies. But you know, big companies that have grown so big must be you know, better, right? Versus a company that can't grow, right? So you know, the market doesn't believe it's worth very much. So you know, weighting to efficient prices will be just fine as a portfolio. But if markets are inefficient, right? If you look at, say, you know, mainland China stock market, or you look at emerging markets more broadly, it's very difficult. You don't even need to look at data, right? It's some anecdotes. Very difficult to convince yourself that those markets are efficient. In that case, would you use the construct that we used to build the S&P 500 to build an index or build a portfolio in those markets and say, hey, that's the best way to access the markets? Um, I might, I said clearly no, right? So I said, okay, so you know, what might be different ways of constructing simple weighting, portfolio weighting schemes. I said, look, you know, we, maybe you should look at fundamentals, right? Prices can go crazy. If you weigh by crazy prices, you get a crazy portfolio, right? A bubble stock will become such a big fraction of your portfolio that when the collapse happens, you're going to be really hurt. So if you weight the portfolio by, you know, blended average of kind of fundamentals that matter, First of all, it's a low turnover and a slow moving portfolio. And you know exactly what are the fundamentals you're buying. So even if the price moves against you, at least you know, hey, it's probably going to come back just because the fundamental is there. So, you know, I, I wrote this paper, first of all, attacking using cap weighting as a way to build uh, portfolios for inefficient markets and proposing an alternative just to, you know, weight portfolios by fundamentals and the benefit of that and then quantify it. You know, the benefit of that is showing that the benefit for the U.S. is minimal. It's a fairly efficient market, so you can weight it by market cap or something else. The difference is not that big. Mm-hmm. And that benefit is, is quite meaningful when you take it down to emerging markets or specifically very noisy market like, you know, China, you know, Vietnam, you know, small Asian economies mm-hmm. and, and Latin economies. So that's the one research that, that I want to take this opportunity to share. So thank you for asking that question. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I read, you know, some of that and also, you know, though the, so if I think about different types of weightings, so we have market cap weighting where we're weighting companies by size. We also have equal cap weighting sometimes, which is difficult to do if you have a broad investment universe, because, you know, it's difficult to put $50 million in a small cap company, but it's not a big deal to put $50 million in Apple. So there are some constraints to that. But when I saw your research and you know proponent of the idea of fundamental weighting, it was fascinating. My question to you now is, 
how does that fit into your work that you do now? Does that still, is that, is that a core part of what you're doing or have things changed since then? So I built on that, recognizing you know, one can do better in more inefficient markets then you know, how do you move away from just a cap-weighted index and into kind of more active construct that can add value? You know, using fundamental for sure, right? If you weight the portfolio by fundamentals, you're going to tilt your portfolio toward better quality company, companies that are cheaper relative to their fundamental. But you know, you also want to sort of diversify from just simple fundamentals like, oh, you know. The cash flow or the actual sort of you know, book equity value, which are very sort of accounting based. Where I think are fundamental. You want to look at other metrics like that. Active analysts would look at you know your ROE, right? You know your your capital structure, your historical growth, and then you want to then include things that are not related to fundamentals, like market sentiment. You know, are there a lot of retail trading? Your portfolio is mostly institutional. So it's really just kind of expanding outside of cap weighting and into other salient information, be it you know, simple accounting-based fundamentals, more active management type of fundamental characteristics, all the way to sort of more market sentiment-driven information. So you know, it's a it's a meaningful extension versus kind of the fundamental weighting research work I did. Almost almost twenty years ago now, mm. but I think it's kind of along the same direction of travel, right? And um, my uh, I did my PhD at the University of Science and Technology in Hefei in China, and I'm a much much more of a lightweight than you, but I try to look at the performance of analysts forecasting earnings, and you find that they're not very good at it, and they're <laughs> always optimistic. And I'm just curious when you're doing a fundamental index type of indexation type of stuff. Are you using forward data or are you using historic data? And there's pros and cons to both, such as with forward data, you run the risk that there could be many, many mid cap or small cap companies that are very interesting, but there simply is no reliable forecast for them. And then when you just rely only on historic data, you could say, well, you're not taking in consideration you know, the latest interest rate moves on the balance sheet of banks, as an example. And so I'm just curious, how do you think about the historic versus forward when you use data? We definitely look at both. And of course, the question is, well, is looking at one better than the other? If you look at both, which one dominates or do you combine the information? And this is where now with um, you know, machine learning, with ability to process more data, we can ask that question and answer much more scientifically, right? It used to be you would sort of gather some US data and construct some very carefully curated portfolios and do kind of a you know clinical case study and say, okay, mm-hmm. you know, like forward-looking data is too optimistic. So if you build portfolios using forward-looking data, you don't really get anything, blah, blah. Now you can say, hey, you know, that's um, built different types of forward-looking analyst-based portfolio. And that's built a variety of different sort of portfolios depending on just the past data that's even interactive and see, can they be combined in some non-linear way and do different type of horse race to see you know, what works and why. And you know, you're probably not surprised that there's information contained in both and it's much better to use them in combination than any one individually. There's going to be more information being aggregated and there's going to be more diversification that you know gets rid of the noise in any single pieces of information. And so the combination, it's almost always better than the parts. 
And is there a time when that combination starts to lose the effectiveness? Like if we think about when we, you know, study regression as an example, there's a point where the next variables already probably captured in some of the prior information that you've got. Like, is there a point where it becomes either a bad, it starts to become a bad signal or it just doesn't add any value? Absolutely. And it's always a trade-off of if you add more information, are you starting to dilute the information you already have? Right? Like if you got some really strong information that allows you to pick these stocks and so just holding on, waiting for that information advance reveals. So if you keep on adding more information and these information are probably less sharp, less relevant, do you dilute your portfolio? Absolutely. There's a risk of that. So, you know, even though quantitative investing appears to be very data driven, there's still a lot of art in it. You know, mm. what data do you use? What data range? And as you add more information, at what point do you sort of stop building signals because you're just adding noise to the process? All of that is a bit of an art applied on top of otherwise very scientific approach. And when I look at most of the, if I look at investing in this way, I would classify it into two general classification for the general listener. And that is, what I would call exposure investment, meaning if small cap companies produce outperformance relative to large cap, let's just say, then we can build a portfolio that has exposure to small caps. We're not trying to outperform in the small cap space. We're just providing exposure to what we know has some long-term potential advantage. Now, another person may say, well, all you're giving is exposure. What I want you to do is outperform in that small cap space. And I'm just curious, how do you describe this type of investing that you do? Is it exposure? Is it active? Is it a combination? How would you describe that? Because most of our clients are low only. For us, we always sell the exposure and try to add a little bit on top of that. Meaning, you know, when someone buys our China fund, let's say, right. first and foremost, they're going to do well if China does well, and they're going to do poorly when China does poorly. And of course, all of our research then is to add on top of that. Same thing, you know, when people buy our value portfolio, yeah, you know, we're going to focus on things that have good characteristics, but are trading cheap. And when value is recognized, they do well. When growth and sex and glitz do well, the value underperforms. So that beta or that exposure is front and center and driving returns. And then we try to add on top of that by thinking about, well, you know, is this company truly a value stock or is it a value trap? Because it's just a state-owned enterprise that will always be mismanaged. And then, you know, if we're right in that identification, we'll add a little bit more. So our portfolios is always a lot of exposure and it's understood that people want to hold that exposure because it's diversifying their portfolio or it's an exposure to have a view on. And our job, of course, to provide that exposure efficiently and then, add alpha on top of it. And in order to add alpha, basically you're trying to identify what, you know, some advantage or idea that you have, and you, you've got to take a sizable bet in that particular idea. If you only take a 1% bet in that idea, then if you were right, it barely impacts your portfolio. But the larger the bet that you take, the more risk that it could go wrong. And when I think about, so let, I want to talk about risk management before we get into the, the real big question of the, the podcast. You know, 
Sometimes risk management, when I think back as an analyst on the sell side, a stock price you know, would start falling. And then we'd just call around and ask people, what do you think? Oh, what's going on? Call the company. What's what's the buzz? Oh, it's still a good company, you know, good fundamentals, just keep buying. You know, an analyst would not necessarily change their mind easily. And then later I realized like, I hate that feeling of a stock falling and not really knowing what to do. But so eventually I started to implement stop losses for individual stocks in the investments that we do. And that helped, you know, that helped to reduce risk to some extent. Of course, you're giving up some potential for upside, but on the average, it tended to add value to the overall portfolio. But it gets a little bit harder when you look at particularly certain ETFs like of a country or of a sector. Think right now, we know the financial sector is kind of crashing in America right now for some different reasons about increased interest rates and stuff like that. And what we've done when we've tested doing stop losses on sectors or kind of higher level indices is that it's much harder to add value through a stop loss. And I'm just curious, maybe you could give some background on your opinion on risk management and kind of how you do things or how you think about things. Yeah. So uh, when I think about risk management, I think in investing, and of course, this is going to link to kind of, you know, the, the biggest investment mistakes topic, but in investing, I think the biggest risk is not external risk, right? It's not, you know, a war. It's not a company committing fraud. It's not, you know, a global financial crisis. Those are all, sure, risks. And they can be large. They can be unpredictable. But I would say the unifying theme, biggest risk in our industry is overconfidence. You think something is true when it isn't. You think you know more than when you actually do. You think you're smarter than the market when you aren't. And the result of that overconfidence cause you to not be open to you know contradictory data not to open to learn other perspective and to take out a bet size that is entirely too large given what you actually know i think that is the biggest risk because this is an industry that attracts generally very intelligent people it's an industry that attracts people who are comfortable with risk even risk seeking so when you combine you know someone who's smart and as a result of that, can be dismissive of other opinions and ideas because they're used to being the smartest person in a room. You combine that with risk loving, and then you give them other people's money, right? Like these are ingredients that combine into making very large bets driven much more by ego than actual data and blinded by ego to data that might suggest risk. And, and I think that that is the, you know, probably the biggest risk in investing. Mm. And when you look at it from a quantitative perspective, how do you, I mean, when you, when you present to clients about your methodology and it gets to the topic of risk management, how do you explain how you guys implement risk management? Now, fundamental indexation type of thing or fundamental investing is kind of risk management in the sense that well, we're investing in good companies. So even if they fall, we think that they're going to still rise in the long run. But maybe you could just explain to us how you explain that to clients about risk management in your in your overall portfolio. So, you know, for us, risk management is diversification. So you won't kind of see any of our strategies be 
sort of concentrated into, you know, 10 names. You won't see kind of our alpha process be driven by one big bet on one stock or one big bet on one sector. So what we do is really diversified. And then really kind of when you look through, we're exposed to, you know, hundreds of names. We're exposed to all the sectors. Within each sector, we're exposed to a number of quality names. We're exposed to all of the reasonable factors that one would say, oh, yeah, those factors are sort of good things to hold, right? And you're exposed to value factors. You're buying cheap stuff. You're exposing to low vol factors. You don't get into illiquid, very speculative stocks that bounce around with no fundamental correspondence, right? We're exposed to, you know, quality growth, you know, uh, low debt ratio in the capital structure. So these are kind of factors we're exposed to, but again, not concentrated into any one of them, assuming that is the best factor. So our risk management is diversification. And at the heart of diversification, you know, we, we run into clients who always ask like, like, can you do more research? And as a result of doing more research, then bet on one factor, just bet on that one factor that'll go up or bet on that one industry that'll go up. And I said, look, it's because we don't know, right? I mean, there's humility in diversification and what we're communicating in diversification is not laziness, right? Some people assume you're diversified because you're lazy, right? Mm-hmm. I'm saying, look, you know, this is just self-awareness. We recognize that it doesn't matter how much research you do, you will never know exactly what's going to happen. And how do you balance that with a investor, a potential investor that says, well, why don't I just buy an ETF, a broad market ETF relative to you? And I would say I'm a big proponent of people who buy a low-cost broad market ETF. That is almost never a, a bad answer. Right? So I'm a big proponent of that. And I would say, look, but in more inefficient markets, when you believe that you have the capability to talk with a manager, to review like an ETF prospectus and pitch deck, and from there saying, oh, you know, I believe in this process of doing better at adding incremental alpha over time, then I would say only then, you know, you might want to move to something more active. And so again, big proponent of people holding ETF, unless they know, you know, they're better informed and know better. But, you know, for us, we're diversifying across, you know, names and sectors and factors that we think give you an incremental advantage over just holding the entire market. And I think for some people, they go, oh yeah, you know, if you eliminate very expensive names, right? If you eliminate very speculative names, you eliminate firms that seem to systematically have accounting red flags. Yeah, we could believe that that over time could do better. Then then we're kind of the right answer for people. And how would you describe the after fee gain that they're going to get from that? Let's just say that the average long-term, you know, broad-based mutual fund or ETF maybe is giving a you know, 8%, 10%, whatever that number is. And applying your methodology gives a slight uptick from there. How would you describe that? Or how do you describe that to the potential in- investors? So first of all, you know, I mean, it's definitely, you know, a noisy statement because yeah. we can say historically, if you look at the data, if you're willing to, you know, hold an idea, you know, a strategy for a full market cycle, you know, through the bull market and the bear market, and multi-factor active approach in like emerging markets where yep. there's most inefficiency, you could probably do four to five percent better. Mm-hmm. But that's based mm-hmm. on historical data. And I've had a number of published papers and others have replicated that kind of suggest why that could happen. But the truth, of course, in the next market cycle, 
the number could be larger, the number could be smaller. And certainly, if there's suspicion that emerging markets are becoming more efficient, the number will be smaller. If there's um, belief that you know markets are more inefficient, because you know efficient economy get promoted out of emerging markets, right? And the more inefficient frontier market gets added, right? So you know that basket could actually become more inefficient. Then the alpha could be larger. I want to shift gears for just a second and talk about China. I moved to Thailand in 1992, and I never went to China until 2016 or 2015. And I met a professor from a university, University of Science and Technology of China. He was at an event that I was at in uh, Bangkok. And he said, why don't you come and teach to my MBA or my executive MBA students? And I was like, I've never been to China. And he said, come. So within a month, he had me there teaching and eventually convinced me to, to do my PhD with him. And I really enjoyed the time on the campus and getting to know people and having lived out of the U.S. for 30 years, you know, it breaks your mind, right? You know, when when you when you come to other countries and you're going to go quickly back to your home, it's easy to walk into a country and go, well, they do this all wrong. And I went into China with a much more open mind, having already had to adapt my mind to living in Thailand. And so I really, you know, was fascinated by what I saw and interested and now what we see is that it's like America, when, when I saw that America put down China as the main adversary in the strategic policy of the Defense Department, or maybe the Department of Offense when it comes to America, but the Defense Department put up this paper. And I remember writing out to clients at that time, like, this is, you know, bad news and watching it just continue to grow. I'm just curious what you see about the U.S.-China relationship, Middle East, geopolitics, you know, you're in a, a unique spot to see kind of it from a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, my business is very much kind of bridging China and the U.S. You know, we, we educate, you know, our clients in China, both institutional retail, a lot about sort of best practice adopted from kind of, you know, U.S. academic research and U.S. industry practice and advise clients there how to globally asset allocate and U.S. being a really important part of the global you know, portfolio. And of course, you know, when we work with our Western and generally US centric clients, it's about, you know, China being a useful diversifier within their portfolio, how to think about and understand China. So I see myself, you know, as, as you yourself do, it's a cringe at some of what is being hyped around in media and also where kind of the government is sort of steering the country and steering public opinion toward, which is to sort of see China as a, a adversary and to focus on China with that lens, right? Because when you want to see the bad in someone, you will see that. Just as if you want to see the good in someone, <laughs> you will see that. You know, China is one country that is trying to figure out what is good for itself. It'll do many things. Some are mistakes, some are good ideas, some are conflicting with US interests, some really is win-win. But if you focus just on where it encroaches on U.S. values or U.S. you know strategic intent, if you focus on the mistake it makes, right, it, it could be a horrible regime that is a front to U.S. value and U.S. benefits. But that is you know not the entire story. Certainly, right? that is driven by bias. I remember when the Trans-Pacific Partnership came up. I was obviously I was in Thailand, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership basically was trying to build, well, partnerships across the ocean. And 
China, of course, is the number one trading partner with the U.S. And for some reason, they weren't included in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I just thought, wow, that's odd. And then we realized that what they were trying to do was to build a block to kind of, and that that's when I really saw the American, let's call it, I don't know, neocons or people that really feel like they've got to knock China out or down. That was when I first kind of realized, oh, oh God, these guys are going to come after, you know, China like this. And I said to myself at the time that from my experience in China is that America managed to take what could have been their biggest ally in Asia and made him potentially their biggest adversary. What is your perspective on what you're seeing, you know, right now and kind of where things go? Yeah. So, you know, I think continual escalation and deterioration relationship at this point feels unavoidable. U.S., I think, since post-war has needed or gotten used to having a adversary, imagine or otherwise, and serve the country well. And so mm-hmm. it's like a playbook that we, the U.S., are used to. And uh, even if it's just out of sheer inertia, right, it's constantly looking for what's that adversary for us to put in front of us to rally around our military complex, rally around our trade policy, our diplomatic policy, so on and so forth. So I think even out of inertia, right, the U.S. says, you know, identify China as an adversary and rolling out the exact same playbook without really thinking, you know, is there a different way? Is there a better playbook? Do we really need this? So, you know, inertia is a very powerful force of nature. And then the other part is, I think uh, if you look at the thousands of years of humanity, right? Organizational behavior, anytime a number two gets too close to a number one, it doesn't matter how good of friends they were, that conflict of interest, right? The, the enormous benefit of being number one, right? You start to fear number two. It just doesn't matter what number two say. Number one knows when number two gets too close to number one, could overtake number one. Just the enormous value of being number one, being taken away is painful, uncomfortable. And then you know, from selfish reasons, it's clearly bad. And you want to stop the rise of number two. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if number two is a good person, bad person, have good intent, bad intent. Just the value of being number one is so high. You will knock down someone who's number two, whether they are intending to be an adversary or not. And so with that, I think my prognosis is a, a combination of inertia and just the fact that being number one is so good. The benefit of that, being the one who dictates terms and standards. Yeah, U.S., I think it's unlikely to change course from where it's steering. And where it gets complicated is if you look at the developing world, the emerging world, the global South, majority of people do not want to see this happen. And I think, you know, if we look at the, um, the vote at the UN for condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we can see that almost every country voted to condemn it. But when there came a vote to kick Russia out of the Human Rights Council, I can't remember which one it was within the UN, basically, you could see that it was a very different story that majority of people, and I I remember writing about this, showing that the majority of people that are represented by their governments are not in favor of what's happening. It now, 
you know, it brings in another factor. And I, I, it's kind of funny because in America, they always talk about diversity and inclusion and all of that stuff. But the minute it comes to an adversary, you know, it's like, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's like just want to go after them. And I'm just wondering, how does the Middle East and the Global South factor into this? And can that either help us prevent a showdown or does that exacerbate a showdown? Well, so I was just in the Middle East about a month ago, and uh, the reason for heading out there was, you know, we're looking for people who are interested in learning about China, investing in China, because we, we have, you know, a really successful China product. And, you know, the reception in the Middle East was very different. And as I speak more to them, I understand, first of all, they don't start with the kind of U.S. bias, right? If you look at the Middle East reporting, the Al Jazeera's reporting on China, it's completely different. Versus the U.S. reporting, right? The same facts are interpreted differently, and they're willing to gather kind of more comprehensive facts to tell more balanced story, right? So it's not that they're pro-China or anti-China, but just they're probably more comprehensive in terms of being neutral and exposing people to to data as an opinion. So you don't have this natural negative headwind, and you're also experiencing that Middle East is sizing up the opportunity, right? Look, you know if China being such a big economy is uh, willing to extend out uh, good trade deals to win more friends. The Middle East is very open to hear. And the Middle East knows that it's in a very enviable position right now, you know, being being a, a major energy producer with Russia offline globally, it's really reevaluating its global partnerships. And, and now I think with Middle East supporting using the Chinese yuan or the renminbi to purchase. Middle Eastern oil, really signaling to the USA, look, you know, the dollar is not the only game in town. U.S. policy isn't going to be the only policy consideration in this part of the region. And the Middle East is happy to build partnership with China. They can come and extract oil and come and build infrastructure, you know, just given China's ability today to build infrastructure. So I think people are now realizing that number two is very close to the number one in terms of the benefits and the deals that they offer. And I think most people recognize that you get a much better deal when they're competitors in marketplace offering services and friendship than when there's only one clear leader who gets to charge monopoly pricing. So I think you are seeing the global South, you're seeing the Middle East recognizing that. I mean, even India, right? India has been a frenemy of China, right? India mm. is not a fan of China. Even India say, hey, on many issues, we're not aligned with the West. You know, we're not going to, you know, align with the West in sanctioning and in blockading China. In fact, we're happy to use the renminbi to trade commodities. So you're seeing India out of sure self-interest, understanding that, yeah, it's a good deal when number two is rising and challenging number one. Mm. And does that, can that help us avert a conflict or does that just cause America to squeeze harder and say, well, we're going to cramp down on your, you know, banking system, you know, your access to us dollars. Or I think about MSCI as an example where they were, you know, bringing China A shares into the MSCI very slowly over time. And, you know, or is it going to be a case where all of a sudden fund managers, you know, can't invest in Asia or not, you know, the index doesn't have China in it anymore or something like that. Definitely the use of the financial system as a weapon 
has been going on really aggressively since after 2008. I think during Obama times is when FATCA and other other tools that they started using really cramped down. And I'm just curious, does this, does the global South as, a, as an example, like India or Middle East, do they have enough, is there enough there that could prevent a showdown or does it accelerate a showdown? Oh, hard to say right now. I think it's really hard to say right now. You know, I think, I think, if enough bulk when it comes to the global south, the Middle East, to the rally in support of China and starting to cause Europe to go, hey, look, you know, that is an option, right? Maybe the U.S. will start to say, okay, if it's not an obvious win, to you know, it's, it's, it's like in high school, right? If you mm. can't tell everyone to ignore the new kid, and a lot of people are willing to extend out all the brands to make friends, you might re-strategize and say, hey, look, maybe uh, maybe I'll go over and be the first one to be his best friend instead of you know kicking him down. So maybe, maybe enough bulk that that is willing to sort of stand up and say, hey, we're we're happy to to back a number two to or to not take sides. That would change number one strategy. I'd uh, love to see that. But they're too early to say. Yep, yep. Well, it's been great talking about all these things and learning so much. But now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, this is about two years ago. It's so relatively fresh, right? Because I've been in this industry for 20 plus years. But two years ago, I hope many of your listeners are aware of this stock called GameStop. GME is the ticker, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, GameStop is this sleepy, almost dead brick and mortar retail store that sells like video games, right? Like not not online streaming video games. We're talking about video games that come in a DVD ROM that you put into your laptop to play, right? It sells like you know cartridges for your Nintendo. It is a dying business. And the stock price shows it, right? I mean, the stock price is trading a couple bucks. And then a forum, the internet forum, Reddit, started hyping up the stock and just convincing everyone, you know, this is a company that's shorted by hedge fund because all the hedge funds realize this company is going to declare bankruptcy because it's got a lot of debt and it's going to be. They said, that's just, that's, you know, do a short squeeze and, and screw the hedge fund. And it started off as a joke, but then, you know, this army of Robinhood.com traders piled on and the share price, I think, got as high as $200, almost $300. And it literally destroyed a few hedge funds. You know, the people who, you know, I think there was a very well-known Tiger Cub protege whose hedge fund almost went under and had to be bailed out because he was short against GME. Now, when I First of all, caught wind of this. I just thought, oh, this is a fascinating case study. You know, I'm going to do a case study and I can, you know, use this to teach my MBA class about how markets can become inefficient, right? And how these prices clearly violate any rationality. After completing that, I go, wow, you know, and the price right now, like it's it kind of pulled back and the price has fallen to, you know, gradually back down. And by that time, most people recognize that was just a, a crazy short squeeze and now things going mm -hmm. back. So I think you know the stock is you know gradually back to you know 
dollars. So still expensive, right? Okay, you know, if it goes back to normal, right? It could fall, you know, another 70, 80%. So uh, I decided to make a bet on that. This is when the second wave of the main stock rally on GME happened and the stock for about a two, three day run went from $40, shot to 100 on its way up to 200 plus before you know, it again cratered back down. And again, you know, today GME is probably in the teens, maybe $20 a share. That, that investment I made lost a lot of money. And you were going... You were going long or short? I was going short. Okay. And how did you decide to eventually close the position? What was it that got you to say, okay, that's enough? Pain. <laughs> no, pain of losing a lot of money. So initially I was saying, okay, the market rally, you know, there's some craziness. I'm going to double down on my position because this is clearly irrational. Mm. And that caused even more pain, right? Then, yeah, at some point, the pain was unbearable, even if I knew. Yeah. If I stay, if I am able to stay the course, that eventually the bubble will burst and it'll you know, go back down and I'll be okay. But just you know, the short-term pain, and then that is something that, unless you experience it, you know, if you're just doing some kind of academic research in a yeah. laboratory, looking at data, you don't quite feel it that way. It literally requires looking at your brokerage account and seeing the value, you know, cratering to understand what it means, the pain of looking at your investment. And I assume that we're talking about a personal investment personal related yes. to your fund. Yeah. Yep. For some people who know you as a very quantitatively driven, you know, data driven guy, they may ask, why did you do it? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that story with you know some of my my academic colleagues at UCLA and they say look clearly you know market's efficient right it doesn't matter how much research you do how much you believe you know GME as a company that loses lots of money and is about to go bankrupt right it doesn't matter what research you do if the market trades at 200 it's worth 200 right like you should just remember market efficiency and not make big bets and then I kind of thought about it and what I realized is no no it's not it's not the market efficiency part that I got wrong you know, clearly that was a case where market's inefficient. What I got wrong is the probably, I think, a wiser saying is the market can be crazy for longer than you have the conviction to stay invested. And that is the one thing that I think and I want to share with Andrew, your audience, which is you might be right. You might really be smarter in the market on one stock, you know, over a long horizon. But in the short run, the market can really stay crazy, stay stupid for longer than you have the money to stay on. And if you forget that, right, the market will remind you in as painful of a way as possible. I guess what I would take away from that is just the fact that the market can wear you down and it can definitely last longer. And it doesn't mean that you're wrong. It just means that you are wrong timing. It's part of the reason why stop losses I like because sometimes I tell clients that basically sometimes happens is I get stopped out of a stock and then a couple of months later I go back into it and they say, well, why are you going into something you just got stopped out of? I said, it could be a good investment. You know, it could be a good stock. It's just that I went in at the wrong time. And so the stop loss helped me in that case, but definitely the market can grind 
you down. So let me ask you, based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering this same fate? Well, I would say you know, risk management, be it stop loss, be it like position constraint, like doesn't matter how convinced, how sure you are, like doesn't matter if you're the CEO of the company doing insider trading on your own company, right? Size it so that if you lose the entire position, you are not going to, you know, have to commit suicide because the pain is so intolerable. So, you know, either stop loss so you can't lose too much, heart position constraint. And when you have heart position constraint, you will naturally be quite diversified. And of course, be diversified. You know, don't research one stock and bet big on it, right? Mm. Have lots of research on lots of uncorrelated possibilities so that, you know, if you're on average more intelligent than the market, then on average, more of your bets will pay off and you're going to do fine. If you're on average more intelligent, but you only bet on one thing, sometimes you can get really unlucky. So what's a resource of yours that you'd recommend for people to go to, to learn more about what you're doing or maybe your research or, you know, things that you've written, where would be the best place for them to go? Well, definitely look me up on LinkedIn. I know there are many wonderful social media platforms, but LinkedIn is the one I'm on. I put you know, daily commentaries, random musings, links to my full, fuller link research papers that I have done. You can, you can find that there and you can always text message me. So that's a great place to great. interact with me. And last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? For the next 12 months, I think is to keep dry gunpowder because there's going to be some turbulence, but I don't think over the next 12 months, there are going to be very clear trends. But I do <laughs> expect we're in the bottoming process for global equities. So if you can keep a lot of dry gunpowder, you know, you don't have to time the absolute bottom, but do participate in the next global bull market cycle. And I think you're going to do really, really well. So that that's, you know, my own goal. And I hope Hope that that's good advice for others to follow suit as well. Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Jason, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I would say always ask yourself before you make any trade, am I smarter than the person who's selling me that share of stock? And that is a great question to ask. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.